Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, three of the largest pharmaceutical companies agreed to pay New York State $1 billion to settle a lawsuit over their role in the ongoing opioid crisis. That amount is only part of what could reach a $26 billion payout by Big Pharma to states and local municipalities reeling from opioid addiction. According to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, the opioid crisis claimed nearly half a million American lives over the last two decades. And today, hundreds of thousands are in recovery from their addiction. A question I have always had is why do 12-step recovery programs include spirituality? And what does that mean as the country becomes less affiliated and aligned with organized religion? It's a reality my next guest has been thinking a lot about. Steve Lane is the president of Episcopal Recovery Ministries. It's a nationwide network of clergy and laity supporting those confronting addiction in all its forms. And the spirituality question is just one of the many his group will be diving into at their annual conference coming up in October in Nashville, Tennessee. I spoke to Pastor Lane from his home in Buffalo, New York. My work with recovery predates my ordination as a priest in the Episcopal Church. I've been a person of long-term recovery for myself for uh, going on four decades. And I've been involved in recovery ministries in the church uh, for quite some time. Is it appropriate to say congratulations for the four decades of, of sobriety or for being in long-term recovery? What does one say to support that? Yeah, so so congratulations is actually not the most appropriate because it, the the uh, implication in congratulations is that that the person has achieved a major milestone where it's really seen more as a gift. Ah. Um, in church speak, I would say it's the grace of God. Uh, it's something that that comes. It's not something one acquires. How should we respond when someone shares that they've hit a milestone in their recovery? Celebrate it with them. Okay. Wow, what an amazing thing that's happened. Yeah. Right. It's so personal. I mean, and I'm asking because it there are also so many stigmas that exist around addiction and recovery. And I want to be mindful of the way in which we enter into that conversation. And I think a lot of that comes out of the old style religion that sees addiction as a moral failing rather than as a disease or something that happens to a person. They see it as a moral failing, a shortcoming. So somebody's an alcoholic and they drink too much. The sort of the knee jerk reaction that people have is, is, well, just stop drinking or stop using or behavior addictions, uh, stop gambling or stop, you know, doing internet porn, just stop and you'll be fine. Repent. And that message, one, doesn't work. And two, it's not a moral failing. It's an addiction. I'm a parent of, of teenagers and young adults. And I feel like language that I have seen really focuses on shifting our attention from the moral framework that you just described to understanding brain chemistry and thinking about neurology and thinking about substances that change physiologically our bodies. Does that answer the challenge of shifting us away from stigma to better understanding? So it's not just a physical ailment that can be rectified by a pill or surgery. It's not just a mental distortion that can be fixed with psychotherapy and with counseling. There's a third element that seems to be critical in recovery, and that's the spiritual element, that thing that can't be named so well. In the recovery process, can the language around spirituality be almost triggering? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a problem and it's a barrier. 
over the last uh, several decades, it's become more so. Um, so the the challenge then is to learn to say things differently. Learning to use different language, different words, makes a lot of difference in terms of how it's heard. In the 12-step world, the first step is to admit that you can't do it alone. And by yourself, you're not going to get there. And the second step is to come into a relationship with something other than self. That's where the spiritual comes in. The spiritual framework that you're describing, can it be challenging for those who identify as atheist or non-deistic in their beliefs? It can be very challenging. And, and certainly traditional 12-steps programs has a whole lot of language that talks about God and they think organized religion. And for an atheist or an agnostic, that's not helpful. But going in and learning to do these steps with different languages, I believe, is key to long-term recovery from an addiction. How are you entering into that? How are you equipping individuals who are working to support recovery in ministry to be mindful of that? Our gathering that we're having this year in October, one of our keynote speakers is Ward Ewing, who has been working with the atheists and agnostic groups within AA. And he has become the spiritual director for the atheists and the agnostics. And he's going to help share with us how that happens and how, for somebody who doesn't believe in a deity, how you can get to a state of spiritual grace. You know, there are faith traditions that do not have a deity. Sure. Lots of them. Lots of traditions, particularly outside the Abrahamic traditions. The two keynote presenters that you have this year, you mentioned one, the Reverend Ward Ewing, but then you also have Rabbi Rami M. Shapiro. Yes. Two keynotes are not actually from your tradition. So is this something that those who are coming are looking to hear is how to reach out to those who are not rooted in the same faith? The fundamental purpose of a faith tradition is to help other people on their path. To me, it's a sick tradition that says, you've got to believe it the way I believe it. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to get there. Our goal is not to make everybody Episcopalian. Our goal is to help people on their own faith journey, whatever that might be. We have a lot of common touch points, common ideas that help us and inform us in our own spiritual journeys. But our challenge, our mission is not to define the path, but to help them as they walk. Mm. That is a very inclusive way of approaching and viewing the role of ministering. Yes, and our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, says it so well. He says it's about love. It's about sharing your love with others, and it's about loving your neighbor. There are lots of different religious groups that are addressing addiction, and there are multiple ones that use it as a tool to evangelize or proselytize. So the radar is always up for us when we're partnering with someone else. Are you there to help? Or are you there to make converts? It presents in a very different sort of way. Uh, and yes, the, the average Joe on the street says, oh, you're offering help, but what's the catch? Mm. That exchange that you described can be a barrier for getting help if you look around and you see that so many of the recovery programs, and I'm thinking particularly of um, programs that follow the AA program, are hosted in houses of worship. I think 12-step meetings are found in churches because churches uh, see the value of 12-step recovery, and so they give them space at a reduced rate. And uh, there are certainly other places where they can meet, but not many that are nearly as private mm. or as inexpensive. It's, there's over 200 different groups that use the same 12 steps with some modification. They also have traditions, which also most of the groups have adopted. And one of them is, is they have no affiliation with any other organization. 
So A is not affiliated with any organization, NA, Al-Anon, Alateen, you name it. They're not affiliated with a religious organization in any way. When this program was first being developed, uh, the language was such that religion and God and, and all of that was inherent. You know, the assumption was the alcoholic was a man and the spouse was the uh, codependent. We know today that that's certainly not uh, universal at all. And the program has evolved. Yes, but there are huge language barriers. What gets people over those barriers is desperation. So despite the fact that it's in the basement of a church, despite the fact that these people talk about God all the time, and I don't believe in God, but if you're desperate enough to get out of the uh, the pit of hell that you found yourself in, you're willing to try even this. I want to pull the thread on that. But there was some news and headlines that came out a few weeks ago about the scale of addiction, the number of people who are turning to alcohol during these uncertain times in which there is a lot of fear, there is a lot of loss. And I am wondering what you have seen and what your reactions uh, are to where we are now in the face of this pandemic. Hopelessness is going up. The, the being isolated and being alone, people are turning to their addiction. One way of looking at it is, is we have this hole that needs to be filled, and we can fill it with a lot of different things. And, and if you fill that hole with alcohol or with a drug, it's a God-sized hole. There's a sense within each of us, I believe, that we're not complete on our own. Alone, we cannot do this, that there's an important we aspect of this, something greater than self. This pandemic has forced people into isolation. So, yes, we've seen um, a large increase in opioid addiction and in alcoholism rates. And it's an interesting thing when they shut down everything except for the grocery stores and the liquor stores. (laughs) The liquor stores didn't close down. Mm. They allowed the local bars to send out the alcohol in takeout containers because there was like, I have nothing else to do. And how we're reaching out to people has changed. In Covering Ministries, we started a virtual meeting, and it's a place for people to gather and talk, even though you're isolated alone in your own home. And the Recovery Ministries reaches out to those people that are hurting, that are desperate to say there is hope. There is a way that you can get to a spiritual way of life that will fill that hole within and make you see that it's service to others that fulfillment is found. It's not in getting what you want. You know, as I hear you describe in this moment that we're in, it's reminding me of a conversation I had with a good friend a couple days ago who is a therapist. And she's exhausted. She shared with me how she herself is feeling like she's on the verge of burning out, carrying so many stories and becoming so intimately familiar with the depths of despair and frustration and loneliness and grief and mourning. And I... The gathering that you have coming up, will there be a place for providers, for those who are in that role of leading, for addressing that challenge as well? You know, who feeds the the, the, the people that are helping others? Who helps the counselors? Where do they go? Um, the same is true with clergy. The clergy's role is to help other people, but who helps the clergy? In the mainline churches, there's been um, a real dropout rate of priests burning out, ministers burning out and giving up, and and they can't do it. They can't keep it up. There's so much pain out there, and it's exacerbated by the COVID pandemic that's isolating people. So this gathering, one of the things is to come together and feed each other. 
we'll, we'll gather together in prayer. We'll gather together with a worship. We'll gather together in, in 12 step meetings and we'll share and we'll feed each other, nurture each other and say, it's okay. Our role is not to save the world. That's not our job. Our job is to help to have that hand out there for the next person that's looking for another way out. Steve Lane is the president of Recovery Ministries of the Episcopal Church. He is a certified spiritual counselor and serves as the priest in charge of St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Buffalo, New York. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, I'm Umbreen Khan. As major pharmaceutical companies work out a settlement for their role in the opioid crisis that could reach $26 billion, according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, the opioid crisis claimed nearly half a million American lives over the last two decades. And today, hundreds of thousands are in recovery from their addiction. One of those people is Harry Kanan. He's the resource director for a treatment center in New Jersey. He is also the son of U.S. Representative Madeline Dean, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. Earlier this year, the two co-authored a memoir, Under Our Roof, a son's battle for recovery, a mother's battle for her son. Producer Kimberly Winston brings us a candid conversation about a struggle most families would prefer to keep hidden. It is nearly impossible to accurately portray the paralyzing fear a parent feels for a drug-addicted child. The constant worry, the sleepless nights, the demoralizing sense of failure, and the gut punch of family betrayal. But Madeline Dean and her son, Harry Canan, put all of that on display in their joint memoir, Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son. Dean is a U.S. representative, a Democrat from the Philadelphia area, and Kanan is now a drug treatment resource counselor. But for at least 10 years, he was a drug addict, working his way from middle school drinking parties to college opiate binges, trampling on the heart of his large Catholic family along the way. One constant of both Madeline's fight for her son and Harry's return from self-destruction was their faith. Here's Madeline reading a passage of the book that shows the centrality of faith to their story. I have a favorite part of our Catholic Mass. Just before communion, when the praying is almost complete, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. 
only say the word and my soul shall be healed. I love that image, how it sums up my faith. Humility and infinite possibility all at once. Years ago, after the Vatican II Council, the phrase was simplified to, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. And I thought it a dumb modernization. I was pleased when the old image of Jesus coming under our roof returned. To this day, it makes me cry when I hear and speak it aloud. Are you crying right now? Oh, well, I can't help myself. Darn it, I thought we'd get farther into this interview. (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) You had to start with that, didn't you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It jumped out at me because of the double meaning. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the things you're saying here about under our roof is the fact that opiate addiction came under your roof despite all the advantages that you and your family have. So tell me why you chose this title for this book. Certainly, it it does come from that passage you just asked me to read. Mm -hmm. It certainly comes from that. And the notion that this was happening under our roof. And I couldn't get my arms around it. I couldn't figure out what was going on, what was going wrong. Uh, And to, I think, great measure, if it can happen under my roof, it can happen under anybody's roof, and it surely does. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Harry, you could tell it from your perspective. From my side, it was more of the second part of what you mentioned, of just how common this is to happen in households all across the country and all across the world. And I think that for me, it sort of gives an image of under our roof is somewhat contained, you know, where people try to contain this and almost hide it, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And so many families experience it and feel it and struggle, but it's just so common. So I think that it's something that so many families go through, and that was just a good way to to really wrap it up in a a clear and concise way. Why I like that phrase so much is it stands in stark contrast to itself. So the first part of the phrase, Lord, I am not worthy, uh, shows our humility. And, you know, if addiction touches your, your life, if mental illness, sickness touches your life, you are humbled by it. But then the other one, which I say it's a statement of our faith, only say the word and my soul shall be healed, tells me that anything is possible in this world. That's my statement of faith. And so I just love that simple expression that shows conflict and contrast, humility and ultimate possibilities. And it just seemed to meet the challenge we were under. Harry, you write very movingly in the book about the first time that you tried drugs. There was a void in your life, some kind of emptiness, and it seemed that drugs filled that emptiness. The first time that I felt intoxicated, felt that euphoria sort of come in, was this feeling of being whole. And you mentioned the void, and I think, you know, as a young child growing up, that's not something that I could place or understand or or even know that was there. It wasn't until, you know, the alcohol and drugs came in and just filled that void for me so perfectly that they felt like like medicine, like what I needed just to be comfortable in my own skin. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin that as soon as I had that feeling I was able to not worry about anything, not worry about fitting in, not worry about doing well in school or meeting people's expectations. I could just be in the moment. And that was a feeling that I chased and I chased for years afterwards. Could you read a section about your drug use for me? When you're using, each day feels like a hurricane. Every call, every conversation could be the one where you're confronted with the truth. Not the truth as you see it, but the truth as it is seen from the outside. The fear of getting caught consumes you. You can't stop chasing, you can't stop lying, and you can't stop using. To stop is to risk being exposed, so you continue to spin. As desperation took over, it became easier to cross new items off my list of dampers. For one, I started stealing. In the past, there were times when I took cash and drugs from dealers or friends who I thought wouldn't notice. 
They were the kind of guys who would steal your wallet and help you look for it. I knew because I was one of them. It was easy to justify that these people deserved to be robbed, but that line soon became blurred. I reasoned that stealing for my daughter's formula and diapers was okay, even noble, ignoring that my entire paycheck had gone toward drugs. With this new thought, everyone became fair game. And now the targets in my crosshairs were the people who loved me the most. This is a very painful chapter in your family's life. So tell me why you wanted to share this story with the world. We wanted to share it more than anything in hopes that we might be able to help someone to shine a light on an issue that I think is often swept under the rug and not talked about openly, even within a family system. So for us, just having an opportunity to begin to get that process out there or get the story out there was something that is a way to start to continue the process of ending the stigma. And I think that just through the process of writing the book, we've come so much closer. And I hope that for anybody who reads it, it can give that same platform or that same opportunity to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And Madeline? Harry and I both immediately thought, what a better way to deal with what we've dealt with Put our money where our mouth is when you talk about stigma. If we could humble ourselves and say, this is what we went through, and if we could expose you know, my own stupidity or stumbles or searching, then maybe we can be a part of ending the stigma. As I was reading the book, I felt like there was a lot of language used around both the time in your addiction and the time in your recovery, and I'm speaking specifically to Harry here that sounded like the language of spiritual practice. Like there are things you talk about, the value of being honest, the value of compassion, the value of taking the time to do little things. And Madeline, I see it in your sections when you talk about um, the power of radical hospitality in your home. So how important was the spiritual component in both of your coming both of you coming back from Harry's addiction for me the spiritual component is critical when i was at the end of my active addiction you know a, a phrase i heard and just perfectly summed up how i felt was i was spiritually bankrupt i had no faith i had no hope and a big part of that was because i couldn't trust myself I knew I shouldn't be using drugs, but I was incapable. So for me in recovery, in terms of filling that void, a big part of that has been filling it with and learning spiritual principles. And for me, that has been so incredibly valuable to give me almost the same feeling of peace and calm and the ability to live within the moment that the drugs gave. I was raised Catholic. And my great-uncle, Walter, lived with us when I was a kid, and he was an oblate priest. Mm -hmm. Um, So we would often do masses in the house. And he was someone that, just by virtue of doing the mass in the house, it took out some of the extravagance of it and made it more personal. Mm. Um, And that was something that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I struggled in going to church and buying in and sort of not seeing it as this punitive type God. Um, But when I I came into recovery, there were priests. The first guy that actually convinced me to pray was a rabbi. You know, all of these different spiritual people in my life were showing me that whatever I believed was okay. And that was sort of the first time that, that I had heard that, you know, because I thought there was just the one way that I knew from growing up. And because I was closed off to that, that's why I said in the book, I thought I was an atheist because I didn't believe in that. But I came to find that I believed in something. And for me, that was enough to open the door. Just believing that there's something bigger than me out there. I want to ask your mother a question. When you were going through this with Harry, was there ever a time when you felt that God was not there? 
I guess maybe that's not the way I hold my faith, at least through that crisis. Uh, that wasn't a framework that I see my own faith. I'm somebody like Harry, a generation ahead, uh, who was raised uh, Catholic, had the benefit of this fantastic uh, mother and father who believed in our Catholic faith, not always happy with our Catholic Church and some of the administration of it. Uh, but then you can see through the book how uh, Walter, Father Walter, Wally, as we call them, um, just became such a pillar of my life and the kid's life. I never call on my faith, I hope I don't, at least to say, you know, why have you abandoned me kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I knew this was a struggle that we were in. I prayed and prayed and prayed, prayed to my parents, prayed to God, mm -hmm. uh, prayed to Walter. And I, I just believe that as I said in the book a couple of times, that nothing is impossible with the Lord. And so I have that faith. I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm not perfect at it. My faith has been challenged um, in recent years. But in terms of the struggle we were in, I knew I could rely upon prayer and hope. I consider my faith a real gift in my life. I think what this experience did for me was just really redouble my faith. And I don't mean by that that I go to Mass every Sunday, because I don't. But it absolutely confirmed in me that there is a love of God. There is something much greater than ourselves. Uh, this is not a solitary journey we are on. And I have a faith uh, that through the power of love and and kindness, uh, you know, good things can happen. But in the end, you know, standing by and watching Harry walk into his recovery and, and really do well in it and find his best self in it and continue to be growing, to me, that said everything that you need to know about sort of spirituality. There's a spirituality about uh, going into and struggling with addiction and a spirituality about how you deal with it. Madeline Dean, a U.S. representative from Pennsylvania, and her son, Harry Kanan. They just described the depths of Harry's opioid addiction. That experience prompted Congresswoman Dean to introduce the End Stigma Act last February, which would create a university grant program designed to educate students on substance use disorder treatment options. The bill is currently in the House Subcommittee on Health. Stigma is a barrier Dean sees as central to tackling the crisis. Let's get back to the conversation with producer Kimberly Winston. There is a stereotype in much of organized religion, and I'm sure beyond, that addiction is somehow a moral and personal failing. It's a spiritual failing. There are a lot of faiths that see addiction to drugs as sin. How do you see that other people of faith might help addicts through this kind of thing? That notion that uh, of addiction as a moral failing and, and those who might think that. I hope that is fewer and fewer people all the time, whether it's a person of faith or not, because that stems from not knowing. It stems from an ignorance that many people could suffer simply because they don't understand that addiction is a disease of the brain. It's actually a disease, just as you wouldn't criticize me if I had cancer I hope no one would criticize me if I am addicted or am an addict. It also has always striked me as the antithesis of my faith, because I think my faith teaches me not to judge someone else. It, it implores me not to judge someone else. And part of our job, I think, is to, to shine a light on what addiction really is. It is not about our moral fiber or being, uh, about a, a, a belief in faith or a failure of faith. It's absolutely a disease, and we have to learn more about it. And Harry? I think that is a huge component of the stigma. For me, one of the most 
eye-opening experiences and, and something that was said to me that completely opened me up. When I was in treatment, I went to Karen Treatment Centers, and there was a priest there. He had been there forever. And Father Bill approached me, and he just said to me, Harry, you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to be well. And to me, that was something that just lifted a weight off of my shoulders because I had felt like I was a bad person. I was raised in the church. I was raised by wonderful parents. I knew what was right and what was wrong. And I think there's this impression with people who, you know, struggle with addiction that they don't care. Mm. I knew all of the things that I was doing were wrong. I knew that. And it was painful every time I did it. But I was in a position and a time in my life where I couldn't see another option. You know, with opiate addiction, the pain of withdrawal is severe. The physical pain and the mental torment that comes along with that can convince you to do some really horrible things. And I think that having leaders of faith, you know, having these views is something that's really dangerous because it keeps people from asking for help and it keeps people from reaching out. And I can tell you from my experience that I no longer do the things that I did because I was given the opportunity to receive help Mm -hmm. and to find a new life. If we could step back and peel off that very thing you just talked about, which is the the false judgment of addiction as a moral failure, if we could peel that off as a society and as legislators and then look at the person underneath that and see their humanity, look into their eyes and see their humanity, then we might craft policies that deal with the person, that deal with the person who is not a failure of a person, but somebody who is sick, who needs help to get well. We have to seek and deal with people in a compassionate way to see their humanity in order to solve problems, not lock them up, not see them as the other or the lesser or the failed. They're all a part of us. Uh, And the sooner we understand that, the sooner we're going to have safer communities and healthier communities. Which brings me to page 192, where you, Madeline, talk about some of the legislation you'd like to see. And if I could get you to read this. The numbers are staggering. Each year, gun violence steals 40,000 lives and wounds another 100,000 people, with countless others terrorized and traumatized. Drug overdose claims nearly 70,000 people annually. And that's even before considering many other forms of addiction. Remember the world's response when two Boeing aircraft crashed within months of each other, one killing 346 souls? The world leaped into action. Under immense public pressure, government agencies forced the company to ground that plane. Overdose and gun violence should be no different. In each case, a jetliner of souls is crashing down on our country every day. How can we surrender to this? How can we accept it as our new normal? What we need is a similar response, an urgent grounding of the things in our society that fuel these crises. So we just had a change in the administration with the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, Now, like you, he is also a practicing Catholic. And like both of you, he's been through some pretty serious personal tragedy in his life. So how hopeful are you both that at this time of turning a new page with a new person in the White House who is a man of faith and a man of compassion, that you can get this kind of legislation through? The night before he was sworn in, you remember he did something that I thought tells you all you need to know about Joe Biden. 
he chose the night before he was sworn in to not make it about himself, but to make it about others who are in pain, who have suffered. And so he did there in front of the Lincoln Memorial, that National Night of Mourning for the more than 400,000 dead of COVID. Among them, uh, my mother-in-law, Harry's grandmother, Joan Canaan. In that moment, he showed his selflessness. And I thought that laid the groundwork for, I hope, the next four years. That in, in remembering and in grieving and in mourning that which is painful and hurtful, we actually will heal. So I have great hope, and I don't mean this in a political way, but I have great hope that what we do and the lens through which we look will have uh, an important filter of compassion uh, and a recognition of humanity in our legislative work and in the rest of our lives. Harry, do you have anything you want to add to that? I'm optimistic that maybe in this new administration, there might be less distraction from the real issues so that we can focus on these things and come together. I think there's consensus now that the so-called war on drugs did not work, um, will not work, and we have to come together and find creative solutions and have people begin to talk about this in a more open way. Harry, would you go to page 187 and read for me that first paragraph? Back in rehab, the counselors had said that if I stayed committed to recovery, holding on to it as my top priority and taking suggestions from my sponsor and new friend, the desire to use would eventually lift. Don't leave before the miracle happens, they would say. When I first heard this, I considered it complete and utter bullshit. The idea that through some magic, or maybe a so-called higher power, the obsession that had plagued me since my first drink would somehow disappear. Tell me, each of you, tell me what was the miracle? When I agreed to go into treatment, I knew I had a drug problem. I didn't have a lot of hope, but I thought maybe, just maybe, I could stop using drugs. But I could not envision my life without the desire Every single day when I woke up, the first thing I thought about was when and how am I going to get high? And to one day wake up and to just not even have that desire, not have that craving, and to not even think about it, that gave me the ability to create and build a new life that already, and like I said, I'm an optimist, so I believe there's a lot more that can happen. But already, just a little more than eight years later, has blown away any expectations that I had for my life. The moment that was a miracle was when Harry said yes to help. I thought I'd have a whole lot of fight, a whole lot of pushback. No, Mom, you've got it all wrong. And when I said to him, Harry, I know it's drugs. I don't know what else to ask, but will you, get, will you go for help? And he said, yes, literally, that single word to me was a miracle. There were a series, a chain link of miracles that was taking place, that he stayed with recovery, that he went on to the next level of recovery, that he went on and got a sponsor and went to meetings and started to be healthy and thrive for him to been doing so well in his work and met a wonderful person in Juliet. Uh, and, and the beautiful life they have, raising Aubrey and, and now Sawyer, another one on the way. This is a series of miracles. But I will say the one that really uh, shone bright was when he said yes to help. After Harry left the drug treatment center, Pope Francis came to Philadelphia. And Madeline, you were dead set on being in the same room with him. You got an invite to be present when Pope Francis visited some local inmates. And as he sometimes does as a gesture of love and humility, he washed their feet. Madeline, if you could go to page 207 and if you could read that section for us. This is quoting the Pope. Mm -hmm. Any society, any family which cannot share or take seriously the pain of its children and views that pain as something normal or to be expected, he said, is a society condemned to remain a hostage to itself, prey to the very things which cause that pain. 
Then he taught from the gospel story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. In those days, washing the feet of one's visitors was an important custom. Washing someone's feet, the Pope said, was a sign of welcome. And to Jesus, it was a sign of an even more important truth, that none of us is above another. The Pope preached that life means getting our feet dirty. Sometimes we take the wrong path, like the inmates gathered in that room. But Jesus wants to wash each of us clean, to heal our wounds no matter what, no matter where our lives have taken us. Quote, Jesus comes to save us from the lie of thinking that no one can change. He offered those words to the prisoners, yet they were meant for us all. How do you see those words working in your life today? Like I said, I'm not a very uh, religious person, but I think the message here is clear. As a society, going back to just the idea of compassion and empathy, we need to be more willing and open to looking out for other people and sometimes extending a hand, even if they're not ready to receive it. Because for me, none of this process was my own doing. You know, I had to do work in order to, you know, maintain my recovery, and I still do. But I wasn't capable of this on my own. And I think that that is just such a valuable message. What would you say to families like yourselves that are going through something like this, where a family member has addiction? What is for each of you the most important thing that you think they should know? It is a single word of uh, of hope, that there is hope. And hope comes from oftentimes being vulnerable. Um, I was vulnerable to learning my mistakes and my failures in trying to figure out what was going on. When you make yourself vulnerable, and Harry was vulnerable to accepting help when things had gotten so desperately bad, um, when you make yourself vulnerable and you open up and you're honest, take advantage of somebody who really is there to want to help you. Don't think that you are not worthy of that help. Don't think that I'm just an awful person and uh, the world will be fine without me. There's there's absolutely hope. And what's even better, um, uh, I just see Harry as a beaming example of this. Addiction tried to steal all of Harry's gifts. And through recovery, his gifts are back and are growing. And so I just hope anybody who is struggling with a loved one with addiction or with addiction themselves knows that they are worth it. They are worthy. There is hope. Uh, and, and reach out to anybody for help. Harry? So I would echo a lot of that. I was incredibly hopeless and I couldn't see that. And I think that just being able to try to offer hope um, and see that there is a possibility to break this cycle. There is an opportunity to get out. I mean, that's the biggest thing is it's not over and there is always hope. And I think the second thing that I would just say is, you know, that I found out sort of through being in recovery is just how many resources that are actually out there, you know, from treatment centers to therapists to psychologists and psychiatrists, support groups. There's many, many pathways towards recovery, just like there's many pathways to spirituality through religion or otherwise. There's a lot out there. If you, if you or someone you know is struggling with this, try to find somebody that you trust anybody that you trust and try to open up a little bit and it takes that vulnerability and it's a very scary thing to do but there's a lot out there and you're not alone madeline dean is a u.s representative from pennsylvania Her son, Harry Kanan, is the resource director at the Recovery Center in New Jersey, where he once received treatment for his opioid addiction. Their memoir, Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son, was released in February 2021. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our producers, Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. 
A shout out to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. To learn more about us, subscribe to the newsletter, check us out, visit interfaithradio.org. Before we go, I want to acknowledge that we are living in difficult times, and many are struggling with addiction. The National Substance Abuse Hotline is there to help you find substance abuse treatment programs and options. The toll-free number is 1-800-662-4357. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well and that you stay connected. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan, and I'll see you next week.